Moving from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 2 is quite a big transition. It's not just the turning of the page or the start of a new chapter, but some significant differences. Acts chapter 1, the apostles and the other gathered believers, disciples of Jesus Christ, were equipped by Jesus with what was to come. Acts chapter 2, they're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, they are held back, wait until the Holy Spirit comes. In Acts chapter 2, they are sent out, go into the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 1, the Savior ascends to heaven. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends from heaven. Indeed, Acts chapter 2 is a turning point in history of the kingdom of God and a turning point then in the history of the world, a significant new phase as the church is born. The Spirit, the church, and the world. Our sermon today, Arrival, the arrival of the Holy Spirit as an indwelling presence among believers. Previously, the Holy Spirit in all of human history would come upon people as God saw fit in order to exercise supernatural powers or ability. The Spirit would come upon them. But now, the Holy Spirit would indwell those who were believers in Jesus, both in the Bible, as we see recorded today, and even today among you and I in this place and watching with us there on the internet. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. Our scripture memory verse for the month we'll put up on the screen and ask you to join with us as we recite that together. It's from next week's sermon. Let's say it together. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter was telling the larger gathered crowd that we'll see there in a few moments in our reading. If you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word, would you do so as we read together our key passage today, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Verse 5. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we see this passage of Scripture. We hear it. 
And we can only imagine what it was like to be there and be witness of what was happening. This miracle, miracles, supernaturally marking the giving of your Holy Spirit as an indwelling presence to all believers. We pray, Father, as we study it this morning, that we would understand clearly what you would have us to know. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Two parts to our sermon today. We're going to take a walk back through this scripture to help exposit it a little bit further, and then we're going to seek to understand the scripture. There are two major theological um, arguments, disagreements, discussions for our day and time that happen in this very passage of Scripture, the baptism versus the filling of the Holy Spirit, and speaking in tongues is that a known language or an unknown language, and we need to deal with those things. So we'll get there in the latter half of our sermon, but in this first half of our sermon, we're recounting the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And your first point there is that while the believers were gathered together... While the believers were gathered together, now the Holy Spirit could have come and God by His power could have sent the Spirit at any time while the believers were apart, but remember He had told them to stay together. He had told them to stay in the upper room and to watch and pray and await the coming of the Holy Spirit. Being together is one of our next steps here at Southview. We've got seven next steps, and the first one is that you might follow Jesus. That means to trust Him as your personal Savior and Lord. The second one is to get baptized. The third one is to invite others. And the fourth one that you may have done, uh, even before any of those others, is to belong together. That we as believers in Jesus, as a church, see this as a value, as something we should do, and that is gather together. It's amazing to me that even on a Sunday when we could have said, oh, we're going to stay home, so many of you came, and we're glad that you're here. And we're glad that we have the internet and a camera and the ability to send this sermon so those that couldn't come or didn't need to come for whatever reason are home safely, but they're still with us in spirit as we worship and study together. We look at that scripture, though, in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came. Now, Pentecost was a feast, one of the three major feasts of the Jewish people. It had originally been an agricultural feast, the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Weeks. Uh, It was seven weeks or 50 days after Passover when the grain harvest was beginning. And so it was a celebration of God's blessing of His people, and that's what it meant. But that changed historically as along the intertestamental period, the time between when the last Old Testament book was written and the first New Testament book was written, about 600 years in there, the Jewish people began to also celebrate it in remembrance of the giving of the law. So Passer or Pentecost had this double meaning for them, similar to the Spirit coming as the first fruit of the believer's inheritance of Jesus. And so they're all together in one place observing the Pentecost meal. We know from our scripture last week there was about 120 of them, a significant number for Jewish people, symbolic of their presence as a community. And then verse 2 says, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Your second point there is then the Holy Spirit came with power. Then the Holy Spirit came with power. 
when they were gathered together, as they were obedient, as they were awaiting the Holy Spirit, doing what God said, God then brought the Holy Spirit and brought him with power. And there were three different signs of this power at this point in time. One was that sound of the blowing wind. The second in verse 3 is they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Not literal fire and not the same sort of fire that fell from heaven. This was not fire that would burn you up, but uh, it it, it appeared to them to be like fire. I, I can't describe it otherwise what you could imagine as well as Luke Recording in the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says that, and it rested on each one of them. And then verse 4 says, And then all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So that's the third sign. The first one was the sound of the mighty rushing wind. The second one was the tongues of fire resting on each and every one gathered together in the room. And the third sign was that all of them began to speak in another tongue, another language. We'll talk further about that tongue or that language here as we go along in the next few moments. Your third point there is that the international crowd heard their own languages. Now, you heard me read it already there. There were folks from 15 different nations. Granted, some nations have multiple languages. I was a missionary in South Africa. We have nine official languages in South Africa. In the nation of Nigeria, they have over 100 languages and thousands of dialects. America even now. Yes, English is our official language, but we probably have every nation under the sun represented in the United States of America. Right here in our Lincoln Public Schools, we have over 50 languages spoken. So what was happening was these Jewish people who may have been born and raised in these other places that had come back to celebrate the Pentecost feast at Jerusalem And their primary language, maybe even their only language, was the language of their birth and the language of the place that they were born, began hearing these believers that had been gathered together in the upper room speaking their own languages. Remember what they said here in verse 7. They were utterly amazed. Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Galileans is code word for hicks, uneducated, ordinary backwater, slow, stupid. Galileans couldn't even pronounce Hebrew right, much less speak other languages, uh, according to the way that folks that lived in Jerusalem or would visit Jerusalem from afar would feel. And so they know that by their appearance, by the way they spoke Hebrew, that they're Galileans, but now they're all hearing them in their own language. Notice what it says at the end of verse 6. It says, when they heard this sound, a crowd came gathering together in bewilderment. So, the believers are gathered together in this upper room, 120 of them. But the sound of the wind was great enough that people from all over the city heard it. The people came to hear the sound of the wind at the upper room. And as they hear that, they notice something else is happening. Notice what it says, but each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. The end of verse 8, or in verse 8, then how is it that each of us hears him in his own native language? The end of verse 11, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. This was 
a phenomenon of known languages being spoke by people who did not know those languages. The pastor who I was saved under and called to ministry, Brother Bill Smith, had ministered in Hawaii, and I've told you this story from this pulpit before. At one time, he was confronting a demon-possessed Japanese man, and he was praying and quoting Scripture to the demon-possessed Japanese man with the help of a Japanese interpreter. The Japanese interpreter stopped, and Bill looked at him and said, why are you stopping? And the man says, you're speaking perfect Japanese, and Bill says, I don't know Japanese. And the interpreter says, he hears you speaking Japanese. I hear you speak it Japanese. Look at his face. Just keep preaching. A gift of languages. That somebody who didn't know how to speak that language was speaking the language they knew, but it was coming out in the hearing of others in their language they did know. Notice what happened in the fourth point there. As the believers declared God's wonders, the international crowd... Well, they were doing what Jewish people did when they gathered together for a feast. They were reciting or remembering what God had done. They were recounting God's blessings throughout their history. I call it a theology of remembrance. When I preached through Deuteronomy years ago, that's what we talked about. Don't forget to remember, right? And that was part of who they were as Jewish people and something we should do as believers as well. That's why you need to keep a journal. That's why you need to have a list of spiritual markers in your life, what God has done where He's showed up to you in significant ways to teach you things and empower you and enable you for His Spirit. And that's what was happening here, that these 120 believers filled with the Holy Spirit anew were speaking in Galilean Hebrew, but everybody that heard them heard them in all these 15 other languages and heard them declaring the praises, the power of God's Spirit. An amazing, miraculous occurrence. The fifth point there is that some in the crowd wondered the meaning of this. Verse 12, they were amazed and perplexed and they asked, what does this mean? Anytime you have something happen that's so far out of the ordinary, maybe it's just a a friend of yours, and normally they're pretty even keel, pretty nice, but they're just nasty and mean and not themselves one day. And you trust their character and you say, you know, something must not be right today with that person. You give them the benefit of the doubt, right? Or something's happening and, you know, it's July. You're driving your car along in July, and snow happens in July. You're going to go, whoa, what is the meaning of snow in July? I need to look to the eastern sky. Is Jesus about to come back? I mean, what's going on here? Unless, of course, you're in the mountains and it might snow in July. When something outside the ordinary happens, we wonder what it means. But notice verse 13. Others doubted the signs. That's going to happen today. It always happens. That when God moves by His Holy Spirit, some folks just don't get it. When you, enabled by the Spirit, or just yourself, others look at you and say, why would you do that? You know, you could lie or you could cheat and it wouldn't make you look bad in front of the boss. Everybody else is doing it, but you're like, I've got to tell the truth. And they look at you and they say, why? There's no benefit to you. The benefit would be in what we call sin, but what the world calls normal. Some of the crowd wondered what the meaning were, but some doubted what the signs were. They made fun of them. They said they've had too much wine. So that's walking back through our scripture to see what was happening. But now we've got to take a little bit of time to unpack what was going on in a deeper way. 
And that's the second major part of our sermon today, and that's understanding the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, if you've got a paper bulletin, which you can now get back at the uh, information counter, you can write some notes or in your journal or on the Version events. It's got these notes there, but it's also got a spot where you can type in some notes for yourself. And that first point under our second major section asked us the question, what was the meaning of these three signs? What was the meaning of these three signs? So remember, there was the sound of the mighty rushing wind. Think about what we know from biblical history. What would the sound symbolize? Power. Reminder of when the law was given at Sinai, there was a sound of a mighty rushing wind. In Ezekiel chapter 37, with the dry bones, the sound of a wind filling the bones with life as God's Spirit came upon them supernaturally to make an army. And in John chapter 3, it said that there would be a blowing like the Spirit in new birth, a wind blowing like the Spirit in new birth. So the sound is symbolic of God's power coming on His people. The second one is fire. Fire throughout the Bible is used as a sign of purity. Think about in Isaiah, when Isaiah says, I can't speak for you, God, and God says, here, let me touch your tongue with this burning coal, and it's going to purify your tongue, and you can speak for me. It's a symbol of purity. The burning bush, it's a symbol of God's presence. That Moses is going, whoa, what is this? It's a bush that's burning, but it's not consumed. And he goes over to see it, and God speaks to him out of the bush. Think about the fire, the cloud by day and the fire by night that led the children of Israel through the wilderness. It was God's presence, God's power. Then the third sign here, tongues. The use of tongues here was a sign of unity, a sign of universality. Remember back in biblical history that when God's Well, not God's people. When people tried to build a tower to the sun so that they could be like God, the Tower of Babel, it said God came down and confused their languages. For all we know, we would assume people spoke one language before that point in time. But then after that, all these other languages began to grow. And so in all those different languages that could not understand one another, what happens now in the coming of the Holy Spirit, God is demonstrating that there is a universality of speech. God was not just for one nation and one language, Hebrew, but is for all nations, every tribe, every tongue. So all of these signs show God's power, announce the coming of the Holy Spirit, affirm the believers in Jesus, and are a witness to the lost. Three signs, some amazing meaning behind all of those signs. Now we've got to ask that second question there. How are baptism and filling of the Holy Spirit different? If you're a child, you may not have heard these terms before, but as an adult, you probably have had conversations with people. Maybe you have been to a church in the past that taught a difference between baptism of the Holy Spirit and filling of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you have friends or family members that go to a different church like that. And so we need to rightly understand these as per what the Bible says. John MacArthur tells us that Paul carefully defines the baptism of the Spirit as an act in which, uh, of an act of Jesus in which he places, 
He, he baptizes the person into his body, which we are saved. I, I want to go over to Romans chapter 6. And so I know in our COVID era here, I haven't too often turned to other pages just to save time in my sermons, but this one we need to read, and there's some others I'll reference. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that the grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were um, therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Paul is talking about salvation. He's teaching us that baptism into the Holy Spirit is a once and for all occurrence that happens at the time of salvation. You read throughout the epistles that Paul wrote, such as in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. You see that we are all baptized into one spirit as one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we're given one spirit to drink. Galatians 3, 27, we're all baptized into Christ, having clothed ourselves with Christ. This is in contrast to the errant teaching that we hear today from Pentecostal or Charismatic or Holiness churches, that nowhere in the Bible does it teach that we're commanded to seek a baptism of the Holy Spirit. That the baptism of the Holy Spirit, these would teach, is some entrance into spiritual eliteness. That's something extra. That, okay, we know you've got saved, but until you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, no, by the way, there's a sign that's coming we're going to talk about next, that is the sign that you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. You're not really saved. It's a single, sovereign, unrepeatable act on God's part, it's not an experience that we can make happen on our own. That's baptism of the Holy Spirit. I wrote this down or brought this here, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I'm just going to put B-A-P-T, and then here we're going to put filling for filling, and the baptism is once for all time. Filling of the Holy Spirit, however, is ongoing. That among the believers gathered, we have biblical evidence of it. We know that among the believers gathered in Acts chapter 2, in that initial arrival and coming of the Holy Spirit that we just read, there were the apostles. And we see that later in the book of Acts, many of those apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit anew. We see in the case of Stephen that he was filled with the Holy Spirit more than once. We see that in the case of Paul that he was filled with the Holy Spirit more than once. So it is ongoing and it is as needed. So there's a difference between baptism of the Holy Spirit and filling of the Holy Spirit. Baptism happens once for all, and it's accomplished at salvation. Filling is something that we should seek regularly. Not I, but Christ. That we confess our sins to who, He who is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That we seek to be filled by the Spirit, not by flesh and sin in the world. And that God, by His Spirit, fills us for His purpose.
So now we've got to get to that third question. And I realize I'm going a little bit fast here. There are books you can read about this. And matter of fact, you could do your own Bible study just looking up the word tongues or languages or baptism or filling of the Holy Spirit and going through and finding out. If you go to the internet and Google it, be careful your sources and the way they're going to lean it because theological background will say, oh, it's this or oh, it's that. But your third question here is how do we understand speaking in tongues? How do we understand speaking in tongues? Well, in this case, a couple things we need to know. The first is this, and I left my marker over here. The word used there for tongues is the Greek word glossa. And it literally means tongue. But it has two meanings. It can mean the uh, physical organ in your mouth. Stick out your tongue. Uh, Say ah, right? Or it can mean language. So it's glossa. But the word we're going to talk about is glossa I think I got enough syllables in that, right? Glossolalia, that means speaking in tongues. That is what we see happening here. What we see happening in Acts chapter 2, we got to be very careful about. First, this was not drunkenness. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. No evidence that they were drinking wine. All the evidence that it was a sign of the Holy Spirit coming in them. Second, It was not to be mistaken as a miracle of hearing alone because they were speaking a language they knew and the others speaking or hearing a language they knew. Third, it was not an incoherent utterance. There are two different types of speaking in tongues. And the first one is this one. So let's just here we go to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to summarize here and then I'm going to write... 1 Corinthians. Put an R on there so you know. Granted, there are other passages in the Bible that teach this as well. But just contrasting these, particularly Acts, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when it mentions the gift of tongues. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when it goes further into the gift of tongues. And there are differences here. And the first difference is the difference in direction. Direction. In Acts chapter 2, the direction was that the uh, tongues spoken were known languages and they were spoken to men that other people could understand. In 1 Corinthians, particularly in chapter 14, the tongue spoken is an unknown language, a prayer language, and it is spoken to God. So the direction of the tongue is different. The Character as well, I've already said. In Acts chapter 2, it was a known language. In Acts chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter 14, an unknown language. An ecstatic utterance, a prayer language. And then, of course, if there's a difference in direction and a difference in character, there's a difference in purpose. Why? Were they different languages? Well, the first was to be evidence of the Holy Spirit. So I'm just going to put evidence, HS for abbreviation's sake, evidence of the Holy Spirit to be a sign for the unbelievers. The second, here's your fancy word here, and I can't fit it all on here, 
I don't think. Edification. Ooh, I can if I squeeze it in, but there's no way you can read that with my terrible handwriting so far away. Edification of the church. Pastor Aaron, are you just making this up to be convenient? No. It's clear. The scripture we read three different times in Acts chapter 2, that it was for men to understand the coming of the Holy Spirit. It was a language they knew that was intelligible to them. And it was evidence of the Holy Spirit in order to draw a crowd so that Peter could preach the gospel and 3,000 people plus would get saved that day. Whereas what you look at in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 You see, the audience is God because it's a prayer language. It's an unknown language. And it is for edification of that person or the church with an interpreter. But why would there be two different kinds of tongues? Well, again, we'll get there in a minute. No teaching today can be established on these scriptures, in my opinion, that there should be still an unknown presence. Ejith Fernando says this, he says, Many who are obviously filled with the Holy Spirit have not spoken in tongues. Those whose church names have holiness or Pentecostal or charismatic or apostolic in them. Their theology teaches that you must have an extra filling of the Holy Spirit and you will demonstrate your salvation by speaking in an unknown language. If it's an unknown language, does there need to be books about how to speak it? Does there need to be coaching about how to speak it? Does there need to be teaching of how to speak it? Or if it's truly from the Holy Spirit, will it not just come upon those to speak it like we see in the New Testament that nobody taught them how to speak it? Nobody coached them. Nobody wrote a book. It was an ecstatic utterance that God filling them by the Spirit did. So, the other contrast, of course, is those like many of us. You know you have the Holy Spirit living within you, but you've never spoken in an ecstatic prayer language, in an unknown language that was glossolalia in the way that our charismatic friends would interpret it. And we see that even in the New Testament In the book of Acts, those who were saved, those who were believers, those who were filled by the Holy Spirit, time and again, didn't necessarily speak in an unknown language. Sometimes they spoke in a known language more than Acts chapter 2. Sometimes they spoke in an unknown language more than 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But it's the evidence thereof. I'm wearing my navy blue sweater vest today. It reminds me of years ago at Christmas, Melanie's uncle Gary had my name in the family Christmas gift exchange, and I got a navy blue sweater vest. It was a handsome one with a crest on it. I still have it in my closet. I don't know why I didn't wear it today. Anyhow, he said to me after I opened it, I was like, wow, a sweater vest. He says, now you can look like a preacher. I guess a preacher's supposed to wear khakis and a sweater vest, right? Pastor David, did you guys see Pastor David? We didn't plan that, by the way. There are some people that would teach you have to speak in tongues in order to be a Christian. You have to have this sign of tongues in order to be a Christian. You don't find that commanded in the Bible. You don't find it evidenced in the Bible. Now let me allow for the fact that God by His Spirit can still allow people to speak in tongues. But I don't believe it's a gift that's ongoing. 
Which leads us to that fourth question. Do such signs still occur today? There are those that would teach such signs of speaking in tongues and the other such sign of physical healing are ongoing gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. That your friend from a charismatic church might say to you that I have the gift of tongues and my friend has the gift of healing that they can literally pray for somebody and they will be healed. I don't doubt that people can still be healed by prayers. I don't doubt that people can still speak known languages that they don't know or speak prayer languages, uh, ecstatic utterances. God by His Spirit can do that, but I do doubt that those are ongoing gifts given to them. I'm what you would call, and most of us are, a cessationist, believing that those sign gifts, speaking in tongues and physical healing, ended with the apostolic era. How do we get there? Well, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 talks about those gifts ending. That's Hebrews 2, 3 and 4. And then even when 1 Corinthians chapter 14, as it speaks about speaking in tongues in verse 21 and 22, it says it's not for edification of the believers, but it's a sign for the lost. It's to draw folks, and those gifts were used in a supernatural, dramatic way for the establishment of the church to demonstrate the presence of the Holy Spirit. And once the apostolic era ended, those gifts ended in the way that charismatic churches teach them. So my response, as I already said, is did they cease? They ceased as gifts that you might have within you but not gifts as the Holy Spirit brings on you that you could still exercise. Because God's still God, and He delights in confounding my understanding and crushing the boxes that I try to fit Him in. And as soon as I would say, I don't believe God could cause somebody to speak in a prayer language or an ecstatic utterance, He's going to do it. As soon as I would say, and I won't, God can't heal anybody by someone's prayer, He's going to do it. I've seen people healed before. And just because you or I haven't been a part of physical healing through prayer, just because you or I haven't spoken in an ecstatic prayer language or spoken a known language that someone else heard that we didn't know that we spoke, such as my friend speaking Japanese to the demon-possessed man, doesn't mean it stopped. Yes, they can still occur today, but not necessarily the way our charismatic friends teach them. You see, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, There needed to be power for every believer in Christ to live a Christ-like life. And with the coming of that power, there are questions and controversies, such as tongues, such as healing. And as with any theological issue, we have to use solid biblical hermeneutics, looking at the context, looking at Scripture to interpret Scripture, and not thinking because one Scripture says this, it's going to be true all the time. The experience of Pentecost is a key that unlocks the book of Acts. What we see here in the coming of the Holy Spirit, evidenced by the sound, by the fire, by the speaking of tongues. Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Holy Spirit is dead. We're dead. The early church of Acts referred to the Holy Spirit as a promise, a gift. They referred to it as baptism, as fullness, as power. And There's no substitute for the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers, especially today. Indeed, though some would try to fake it on their own, 
the true Christian life would be impossible without the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we come before you now with these heavy questions of theology on our mind, but more so our personal experience. Those of us that have trusted Jesus as our Savior and Lord, and we know that we have the Holy Spirit within us, but maybe due to our own sinfulness and wandering, we've not seen the Holy Spirit exercise Himself in us. Not just in something supernatural like speaking another language or a physical healing, but even His presence guiding us, encouraging us, convicting us, and teaching us. So God, that means that we've got something spiritually in the way, and that something is sin, and we need to confess it right now. That we come humbly before You and confess our sins, and we'll name them as You name them. Confess means agree, and we'll repent from those sins. Repent means turn. And we'll seek accountability from other believers in Jesus in order that we might guard ourselves from falling back. God, may we be filled with the Holy Spirit in order that we may live the lives that you've called us to. And we pray, Father, for those that are hearing me this morning that are not yet believers in Jesus, whether they're a child, a teenager, or an adult, that if they need to do that, Lord, admitting that they're sinners, that they would do that. So God, thank you that you're with us today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.